From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Professor Harry Manoharan will talk to us about carbon based nanoelectronics. So, stay right here. Carbon in its bulk form can exhibit vastly different properties from the softness of graphene to the world's hardest material known as diamonds. Well, at the nanoscopic level, the story is even more fascinating as carbon exhibits vastly different electronic properties based on how they're aggregated. Well, joining us to talk about uh, research in this exciting field is Professor Harry Manoharan of Stanford University. Uh, he'll be telling us about his work in creating a nano-rectifier using buckyballs and diamondoids. Professor Manoharan, thank you so much for joining us here today. Okay, great. Thank you. So, to begin with, uh, the story actually begins in 1985 when uh, buckyballs, uh, cage-like structures of carbon, were first discovered and a Nobel Prize was later awarded to uh, Smalley, Croto, and Curl. Uh, could you tell us a little bit behind this discovery and the science behind it? Sure, of course. Of course, the discovery of, of buckyballs was a major event. And the I would say perhaps, uh, well, to, by way of introduction, these buckyballs, uh, their chemical formula is C60, carbon 60. So there's 60 carbon atoms arranged in a soccer ball shape to make the buckyball. Uh, so all carbon and nothing else. If you were to, uh, you mentioned graphene, if you were to kind of slice up a buckyball and lay it, lay it flat, uh, you could get, you would get more or less something like graphene, although uh, in order to make it, if you were to take graphene and roll it up in a ball, you have to cut some bonds out, uh, so the hexagons, you'll get some pentagons, and so that's how you make a stable uh, buckyball. Mm-hmm. So, uh, buckyballs themselves, they're, they're, about a nanometer in size, and the electronics of a buckyball is different than graphene, just uh, by virtue of its uh, shape and structure. Uh, it has what's called an energy gap, so there's some energies that there's no electronic states that uh, exist. Uh, if you go above or below that, then you find states where electrons can live, um, and so. Uh, the I would say the, the one of the main connections uh, the buckyball has with our current work is the fact that it was discovered some time ago that buckyballs like to grab electrons. So uh, they we call them uh, we call it something we would say it's an electron acceptor. It wants to take electrons. So if you put a buckyball on say a metallic surface that has electrons, the electrons want to go into the buckyball. 
so we say they have um, their electron acceptors. C60 has electron affinity, it likes electrons. And so your research was recently published in Nature Communications. Um, in, in the press release, it's noted that the uh, electronic structures are from an unconventional form of carbon. Uh, does that mean they're very difficult to find, and does it require uh, extreme conditions for for these to be produced? Okay, so the if you're asking first about the buckyballs, mm -hmm. the buckyballs uh, were uh, were thought to be stable, but the trick was actually isolating them and find them in in nature. And ironically, now we realize that they're quite plentiful. For example, uh, stand, just soot contains buckyballs. It was a matter of believing that they were there and isolating them. Uh, buckyballs are, are present in nature. Our work that you're asking about involves another form of carbon, which uh, are called diamonds. Uh, they're related to diamond, another form of carbon. So, of course, diamond, diamonds are also found in nature, but uh, the conditions that make them are a lot more rare than making soot. So, for example, high pressure deep in the earth. And, uh, and so, uh, on the other hand, it turns out that tiny pieces of diamond, so-called diamondoids, or molecular diamonds, are actually quite plentiful and easy to find once you, uh, once you know where to look. And part of the history of these diamondoids is that uh, some of our collaborators on this work are experts in finding those diamondoids in the earth. Yeah, and so we know that diamond uh, is found deep in the Earth. Um, are these perhaps, these diamonds, the nucleus where bulk diamonds are actually formed? That's right. So if you took, uh, maybe one way to look at it is if you take a bulk diamond, and you imagine just, uh, so bulk diamond, uh, uh, to contrast with the uh, buckyballs, is uh, also made all of carbon, uh, but the the bonds between the carbon are different than in uh, than in C60 and the buckyballs. So we call them we call uh, C60, but the buckyballs and diamondoids or diamond different allotropes of carbon. Both made of carbon, but they're just bonded in different uh, symmetry. If you look, for example, at graphene's uh, honeycomb lattice, uh, and then you roll this up, you get uh, a buckyball. Uh, each carbon is bonded to three other carbons. Uh, and in the diamond structure, each carbon is bonded to four other carbon atoms. And so it takes on a different three-dimensional structure. Uh, graphene, for example, is very, it's kind of floppy, but it's strong. You know, it's a sheet, but it's uh, strong when you try to pull it apart. Mm -hmm. uh, diamond is, is a three-dimensional, very stiff material because of that uh, the nature of its bonding. It's called tetrahedral bonding. And of course, uh, we talked about the electronics of, of graphene, of uh, the buckyballs. The electronics of diamonds and diamondoids are also very different. They have also an energy gap, but it's a very large energy gap. And you could say diamond is, a, is an almost perfect insulator. Um, it's very hard to um, excite electrons within them. So they're not, uh, they're hard to use, for example, in conventional electronics. Um, however, diamondoids possess some of the, which are molecular forms or small nanoscale forms of diamond, possess some of the extreme properties of diamond, but they're a bit more 
flexible because we can tune their size to get the gaps. And I would say, I guess the key key discovery in recent past about diamondoids is uh, their ability to emit electrons uh, very efficiently, meaning they want to give up electrons or shoot electrons out. So this is the opposite of C60 or the buckyballs. And so buckyballs, you remember, they like to accept electrons, <laughs> uh, positive electron affinity. Diamondoids have what we call negative electron affinity. They want to get rid of electrons. So they're kind of the opposite electronic partner to buckyballs. And in a nutshell, our work was to combine the opposites uh, and in such a way uh, make a, mo a new molecule size diode or rectifier. I see. And would that make the diamondoid and the buckyballs analogous to, say, um, the anode and cathode of a battery? It's a little bit like that, but I would say a more a closer analogy would be what we call a, a PN junction diode in, say, a standard conventional silicon-based electronics. We call it PN junction or rectifier. So uh, every, uh, every computer chip basically has three components that you will find, uh, three basic components uh, for moving electrons around in the form of currents. You need something that conducts them, so they're tiny wires. Um, you need um, to steer the uh, electrons in, in one direction versus other. That's what uh, diodes do, or mm -hmm. rectifiers do. They make it easier for electrons to flow one direction then, as opposed to another. And then you need that, those electron currents to uh, turn on and off little switches, and that's what, that's what transistors do. And these devices that you created, uh, how big are they? So they're there are a few nanometers in size, so a buckyball is about a nanometer across, and then this, uh, imagine we, we bond a, a diamondoid uh, molecule on top of it, which, is, which itself is about a nanometer in mm -hmm. size, so we get something that's about two nanometers long. Um, the diamondoid that we used is called diamantine, and uh, this is, um, the names are easy to understand once you understand that there's a hierarchy of these diamondoids. Mm -hmm. So if you take a diamond lattice and you chop it up and find what's the most fast, what's the most stable uh, form of that, the smallest stable form of diamond, it's called adamantane. Adamantane is basically like one cage of this diamond. Um, if you if you remove those carbon atoms from uh, from the diamond lattice, then those carbon atoms uh, are sort of uh, don't have all of their bonds satisfied. So in order to make it stable, you have to um, add hydrogen on the, some of the corners. And so uh, uh, once you've done that, you can now uh, consider that a building block. And one cage is adamantane. When you put two together, you get diamantane. If you add three together, you get triamantane. And there's tetramantane, pentamantane, and so forth. There's a whole hierarchy of these uh, so-called diamondoids. It looks like there's a lot of fancy bonding going on. Uh, are these structures made, uh, say, in solution or in the gas phase? The, there's many steps, but the so the first are the ingredients. So you need the C60, and then you need the diamondoids. Mm -hmm. So the C60, as I mentioned, can buy you can uh, isolate from from soot or other carbon deposits. Uh, nowadays, you can just go online and buy large quantities of C60. 
the diamondoids uh, depend on the size. In the same way that bulk diamond is not easy to just synthesize, okay, or else everyone would have diamonds. <laughs> uh, we would, you know, diamondoids are also they're very hard to make from scratch. Right. So um, it turns out that the very small diamondoids now can be made uh, through chemical reactions, and you can even buy them commercially. So adamantane, for example, uh, can be made. In fact, it's uh, part of the ingredients for some uh, health drugs. Uh, diamantane and triamantane are a little bit harder, are progressively harder to make. But diamantane, uh, you can uh, uh, you can synthesize. Uh, and then beyond that, it's uh, nobody's figured out how to synthesize those from scratch. And so. The alternative is that, well, so these were stu- these diamonds were studied in the past theoretically and were known to be stable, but we never had an example uh, that we could do experiments on until uh, a few, some years ago, maybe around 2003, there was a team that started out actually at Chevron, some chemists there. Uh, they're now at, uh, at Stanford and we're part of their, our collaborators here on the synthesis end. Uh, they isolate these diamondoids from, as I mentioned before, from the earth, from petroleum deposits. deposits. So these diamondoids, it turns out, they're they're all they're coming out. They're they're basically uh, considered uh, junk from <laughs> that the oil companies aren't interested in because they're kind of they're uh, they can't be used and burned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're being pumped out all the time, and so this team figured out how to just take take the petroleum and gas deposits and purify them to get out these diamondoids and they could get huge masses of these uh, of these diamondoids um, and in fact for the first time found these higher diamondoids that are uh, four or more cages in this case we used the diamondoids that they purified but we used uh, uh, we actually used um, the diamantane and tetramantane, the two-cage and the four-cage variants. The paper that we uh, wrote that just came out uh, involves uh, mainly the two-cage variant. And then we collaborated with uh, some chemists from Germany who are experts in diamond chemistry, uh, and they figured out how to bond this together. And so that did involve many steps, Solution is, solutions are along, you know, along the way, and then they had to figure out, they had to do tests to make sure that uh, the thing was stable and it was what we what we thought it was. It's like all the carbon atoms are there. Uh, and the result is basically, uh, in our work, you can see the pictures of this diamondoid. Um, it's, uh, in the end, it's a, it's a hydrocarbon molecule because C60 is all carbon and the diamondoid is carbon with hydrogen on the corners. Mm-hmm. When we put this thing together, we can talk about we talk about later why it works, but it's the first, what we discovered is it's a rectifier, and it's the first all-hydrocarbon molecular rectifier. So you mentioned that they act as diodes. Uh, could these devices be also used in the LED lamps we see in the store? Any uh, use that you can think of for a diode uh, can be uh, transcribed into this kind of molecular size uh, gadget. So to make an LED, you need to um, you need first the one-way uh, current, mm-hmm. but you also need some kind of efficient uh, recombination of what's called electrons and holes in order to emit photons, which
which is light. In this, in this work that we did, we did not look at this recombination effect or light emissions. That might be something for the future, but in this case, we just looked at how current flowed in one direction versus the other. So the potential looks very promising. Uh, one of the concerns with devices in general is their durability, how often you can turn them on and off and have it still uh, being used. Um, do you see these devices as being something far more uh, robust than what's out there on the market? Okay, I would say that so the main uh, focus of our, of our research was basic science, uh, not immediately to take this to the level of full engineering tests. No, we haven't done that, what you would want to do for, say, an engineering test in a real device, which is, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of cycles. Uh, however, uh, we have studied uh, thousands of these molecules, um, one, you know, individually and then also in groups of, uh, as they've been arrayed in, in, a, in a so-called monolayer of these molecules on the surface. And uh, the, uh, there is no visible degradation of these, and nor, nor, would, nor do we uh, expect them at the conditions that we're using, which are fairly small currents. Um, so we're, we're talking uh, only up to nano amps to be able to see. I mean, uh, we, we just uh, we could go up higher, but we didn't need to in these experiments. So, however, the, the ingredients themselves are very uh, fault tolerant. So buckyball by itself is very stable, and the diamondoids uh, are very stable. Sure. So perhaps the weakest link in this molecule is the linker between the diamondoid and the C60. Um, however, we did look at uh, um, when, as we added more, uh, we increased the voltage across this. We can we can test, we can look at the current. We can actually measure how this molecule vibrates. Right. So, for example, if something breaks apart, anything you know, even some macro like a bridge, uh -huh. before it breaks apart, you see it vibrating, right? Right. And it, right. It's in resonance and breaks apart. So we can actually look at those vibrational, so-called vibrational modes of this molecule. And um, uh, even even with uh, exciting those vibrational modes, this thing stays together um, fairly well. well. It never breaks apart for sure. And we can uh, we can also see that um, uh, we can heat heat the thing up, and uh, we tested that it's thermally stable as well. And what about photoelectric effects? Uh, have you tried seeing what happens if you shine light on the devices? Okay, so in in our experiment, we didn't test uh, uh, any photo effects. Mm -hmm. However, in a in a previous experiment, so this on on the previous experiment on just the diamondoids, okay, and that was actually uh, the result of that was uh, was this so-called negative electron affinity, which led to our idea of making this. Uh, new hybrid molecule, but the previous experiment was to basically excite uh, the excite electrons in a diamondoid on a surface with photons, with light, and what that does, the photon comes in at high energy, it pumps up an electron into a higher energy level in the diamondoid, and then into the so-called conduction band, uh, and uh, what was discovered in those previous experiments, which were also done at uh, Stanford by a different team, 
when that electron gets up and the conduction band gets photo excited, they found that the electron just came out of the diamond ring. It just shot out efficiently. And so that was the proof of this negative electron affinity, and the analysis of those experiments showed that the diamond really wants to get rid of electrons. It seems you've uh, touched upon some exciting new materials. Uh, where do you foresee this work going? I guess the straightforward extension of, this, uh, uh, of these experiments using the buckyball combined with diamondoid is uh, to make a transistor. You have the, the buckyball is like a p-type material, plays the role of p-type semiconductor. The diamondoid is like an n-type uh, semiconductor. We put them together, we get a p-n junction, which is a diode. A transistor is just two p-n junctions back-to-back, so it's something like n-p-n or p-n-p. That's what we call bipolar transistor in, in uh, circuits. So in our case, it's clear how to make this. Um, we would put, for example, uh, if we had a diamondoid, a buckyball, and a diamondoid, then that would be NPN transistor. And then if mm-hmm. you had a diamondoid in the center with a buckyball on either side, uh, that would be a PNP transistor. So right. um, it seems that uh, we have in our hands the working chemistry to do that with our collaborators, and um, we would then need to figure out what's the best way to test that. These things are really small, so even the experiments we did were challenging because we have to basically uh, come down and uh, routinely make contact to a nanoscale object mm-hmm. and do that one, you know, one molecule at a time. So this is um, well below even the smallest features in conventional electronics today. Um, so uh, we would uh, look a transistor made out, you know, made out of the same materials would be would have one one extra electrode that we'd have to figure out how to contact, but um, that would be the next step. So I think um, we we have a we sort of moving in that direction. So I guess we're running a little bit out of time, but I wanted to get your thoughts on one of the uh, um, um, you know focus of technology these days, uh, particularly energy storage and there's been a lot of talk about using carbon-based materials uh, to store charge either as a a supercapacitor or as a battery. Uh, I'm just curious, um, do you foresee carbon as a reliable way to uh, store energy? Sure, so carbon in general, yes. And so as it pertains to this particular structure, um, I'm not sure. So to put it in context, the uh, so, so a, a supercapacitor on the way to say a battery, they all basically supercapacitors, capacitors, supercapacitors, or batteries. They're all about charge storage. Mm-hmm. So you need to store charge, and then uh, later you, you take the charge out and uh, power something else. So uh, the let's let's start with the capacitors. Uh, the capacitor, one one physical property you need you need usually is the material to be a good so-called dielectric. In other words, it wants to hold charge, um, and the charge will be stable for some time, not without leaking off. Um, the the hybrid molecule that we studied, this bucky diamondoid, by itself uh, is not. I would say it's not 
it was it wasn't designed to hold charge. In fact, it was designed to steer charge as mm. charge was through it efficiently. So, uh, so the the charge the electron, for example, moves very efficiently out of the diamond, so from the diamond into the buckyball, mm-hmm. and then just have to make external contacts to feed the electrons in from one side, the diamond side, and then extract them from the buckyball side. Right. So this thing was designed to steer charge, not to hold it. Um, however, possibly some other combination of these materials, or even the diamondoids themselves, might be good for charge storage, hence capacitors, uh, because the, well, diamond is a good dielectric, and the diamondoids uh, should be, although this is something that we're still, uh, we still haven't measured. Uh, because it's difficult to measure dielectric properties of these tiny materials, but mm. uh, once we do, that will be one of the one of the possible applications of that is charge storage as opposed to charge steering and conduction, which is what we did here. Great, uh, Professor Manoharan, thank you so much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. And we were just talking to Professor Hari Manoharan of Stanford University. His recent work on electronic devices created by buckyballs and diamondoids has been published in Nature Communications. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us up on the web at www.groks.net. You can email us at science at groks.net. See us on Facebook or Twitter. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music.